Hi, listener. I'm your host, Sally Holder. Join me each week to escape and be refreshed with stories of people who dared not to settle for the American dream. Go beyond just getting enough in life and live into a place where big dreams actually do come true. In each episode, you'll discover why internal success is better than external success. Be prepared to redefine what your best looks like in your life and free yourself from the guilt of wanting more. Hey guys, this is such an exciting episode. I have an amazing interview with Amy, who is the designer of Tibby. She has an incredible story. I mean, you are literally going to learn so much from all of the ins and outs of how she started her business. And she really shares a behind the scenes look at, you know, all the trials and tribulations she faced and how she overcame them. So I can't wait for you to be able to listen to all the details in this episode. You're going to want to take notes for sure. But before we jump into that, last week, I was in Athens, Georgia for a speaking engagement. I was doing a workshop with some amazing female entrepreneurs who I, you guys know, that's my passion is working with them and helping women grow their revenue. And I had the glorious pleasure of having a sit-down dinner hosted by my good friend, Cherie Levy, who owns the Southern Sea Summit. I interviewed her on another episode. So if you've not listened to that one, go listen, um, which is an amazing summit for all female entrepreneurs each February. And so definitely you're going to want to come to that. But uh, we had a dinner with about 20 women. All of them were female entrepreneurs and they were from different genres. So everyone from a car dealership owner to an artist to some amazing women in their 80s that own a store that has been around for more than 30 years. And we did something really remarkable, and that is that we went around the table and all introduced ourselves and got to know one another. And it was really one of the most special nights I've had in a very long time. And the reason why I wanted to share it with all of you is that I'm going to be honest, sometimes when I'm invited to situations like that, I shy away from it because I don't know everyone in attendance and we tend to then feel inadequate, right? We tend to feel like, oh, am I good enough? Should I go? You know, am I going to know anyone there? Am I going to feel comfortable? And after having had this experience, I would say throw all of those concerns out the window because a night like that was so cup filling. I feel so empowered and just being around other women and hearing different perspectives and how they look at life and getting to know different people. And there were even tears shed at the table. And a lot of that had to do with the ability to just take off the mask, be themselves, and they didn't have to, you know, hold themselves up as anything other than they who they are authentically because no one else at the table was depending on them. 
no one else at the table did they have an attachment to where they were thinking, oh, I better not share about my thing because it's not as good as her thing. Or I better not share about my woes because I know what she's going through. See, in an environment where you don't know that many people, you're able to just be your authentic self and stand there in your truth and not worry about minimizing or maximizing who you are. You just get to be you. And that's what every woman at the table did. It was phenomenal. So take a moment after this episode and go and seek out other opportunities to spend with other female entrepreneurs and go there by yourself. Go to the event, go to, you know, the networking thing, go and hear a new speaker, an author, go to a bookseller the next time she's having a female author come in and speak. You can find inspiration everywhere when you go and seek it out. And it seems to be the number one thing I'm hearing from other female entrepreneurs is this can be a lonely journey and it doesn't have to be. And so we need to all put ourselves in situations similar to the ones that I got to experience in Athens last week. It was incredible. I'm so grateful for the women that came and I can't wait to create more opportunities like that for myself, and I hope you will do the same. I know we all need it, and you certainly deserve it. So now let's get started with this incredible episode with Amy. Okay, listeners, I am incredibly honored and excited today to be able to interview the founder, the designer of a my favorite fashion line that I wear all the time. Um, I'm sure if you follow me on Instagram, you see me in it nearly once a week. Um, and that is the founder of Tibby. Amy, you are joining us. I'm so excited you're here with us. Thank you. Me too. So, Here at the Hitting Rock Middle podcast, we talk a lot about um, how female entrepreneurs have gotten to where they are today. And you have had a brand that has survived longer than most people can possibly imagine. (laughs) And that is right, right. Um, And that is something to be applauded. So I want to start at the beginning and really figure out you know, what gave you the inspiration to start this brand and how you thought this was possible? Because I'm sure at the beginning you had what a lot of our entrepreneurs struggle with and that those are the doubts and the fears. Can I really do this? So um, I'd love to kind of start at the beginning of your journey and just hear about what, what got you started. Um, well, you know, I always knew I wanted to have my own business and I spent about nine years working for American Express and for Ogilvy and Mather Advertising. Um, and I moved to Hong Kong in 1997 and that kind of gave me permission to start something fresh and new without, you know, judging eyes over you. You know, somehow when you go to another country, you just have freedom to be whatever you want. You know, you can try on a whole new persona. And, um, and, you know, being in Hong Kong, it is literally, factually, the most entrepreneurial country in the world. And it was a place where people just do it. And I think that is 
the biggest thing when you are starting out, um, you really just have to do it. You have to make quick decisions. You have to work with information that might not be as complete as you would like it to be. But, you know, as long as you are not doing something in the hospital field or in the, you know, architectural field, then, you know, something as uh, like clothing has pretty low risk. If you make mistakes, you you correct path and, and go on. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing is you just jump in and you do it. You Every day you do something more than you did the day before and you keep making decisions and moving forward. I love what you said there about making quick decisions and being okay with the incomplete. I mean, so many of us want to know you know, the entire path. We want to be able to look ahead and say, okay, this is how everything is going to come together. Um, but that's just virtually impossible. Well, I, I think if, if you have a really strong desire and need to do that, um, I don't ever like to discourage someone from becoming an entrepreneur, but um, you need to be an entrepreneur with a good partner who has that bit of fearlessness and comfort with not having all the information at hand because you really will not get off the starting block if you are a perfectionist. Um, if you do need that uh, certainty with each move where it's going to take you, you will not get off the starting block. Oh, I can already tell I'm going to have a million quotables that are going to come out of this interview. <laughs> um, uh, so how did you officially get off the starting block? What was the, the first step that you took? Well, I made sketches, and then when I got to Hong Kong, I immediately uh, contacted a headhunting agency, and I asked them for the names of uh, pattern makers and factories who spoke English and could work with someone who didn't know a lot about the industry. And the thing was, in Hong Kong, I got a response within an hour. So now you've got a response, you have to do something with it. So then I made the phone calls and then they said, okay, we'll meet with you tomorrow. And then you have a meeting and then you go meet with them. And then, you know, my tendency was to tell them, okay, you know, we've met, let me go back, let me evaluate, let me run some numbers. And they were just like, you know, $20, yes or no. And that's the beauty with the Chinese language is it's very direct. And so you are like, yes or no, I chose yes. And, and three days later, I had samples made. So it's, you know, you can just find yourself on this, on this path. And each time you have to be running through a mental calculation of what you're spending. Um, you know, I wouldn't have, if, if the answer had been 20,000, yes, no, I wouldn't have just said yes. So you know, each time you're saying yes, you do have to do a quick mental checklist in your head on how, um, how much of a risk are you really taking here? And uh, the risk of doing nothing is the worst thing you can do when you're an entrepreneur. Oh, absolutely. So did you start out though with, you know, and this is what a lot of people kind of imagine that, oh, well, every other entrepreneur has had a leg up, right? They, they started with millions in the bank and they, you know, had family connections that took them where they needed to go and 
all the rest. And I know that was not the case for you. So kind of dispel some of those myths for us. I, I know that you didn't grow up in one of the bigger cities and have all of the connections immediately. off. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I had definitely the opposite of connections and I think, and I was choosing to go into a field like, I don't know, maybe had I started an ad agency, I would have had some connections, but I was choosing to do something totally different. So um, I had zero connections. And I think that was a good thing because even uh, a couple months in when I started reaching out to people within the industry to try and find someone to mentor me and blah, blah, blah. They were just such freaking Debbie Downers, you know, I just didn't want to even hear from them. And um, and so I didn't want to use mentors because it was an, an industry that was very backwards ass. So it didn't make sense to talk to people who were doing things in an old fashioned way. It's like if you were going to start a, you know, a movie streaming company right now, you wouldn't go talk to Mr. VHS. And that's kind of where the clothing industry was at the time. And, um, and so, you know, I had $15,000 and when you have nothing, it forces you to be really smart about how you use the money. We always said you eat what you kill. If you make it, then you got to sell it because then you don't have more money to make more. And, you know, when you've been given a big bank, you get to make so many big mistakes because you are not beholden to um, revenue that actually is required to fund the company. <clears throat> so it forces you to know what will sell and what won't sell. I love that. So you just got in there and started with creativity and a lot of enthusiasm for what you were doing and made it work. Exactly. And, you know, we, I ended up joining forces three days after I moved to Hong Kong. I joined forces with another American that was there. And um, she and I were just kind of, we just had fun with it, even though I was very serious about it. But we also had fun with it. And we had to find customers. And we literally would go out at night trolling bars for women. We were like, you know, I was like, man, this is, would suck to be a guy. Like we had to walk up and introduce ourselves to women, totally trying to get them into our apartment so we could sell them clothing. And um, <laughs> like, you, you do what you have to do. And um, it just forces you to be very scrappy when you, when you have no safety net. And I mean, I, I don't want to say I had no safety net because I had a husband in a home. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to be out on the street if this failed, but I certainly, um, you know, my parents would never heard of the word trust fund or anything like that. So there was no, no socialite. Uh, I don't know if it's St. Simon's Island, Georgia had socialite. So <laughs> right. if they did, I was not one of them. <laughs> um, so after creating those samples, then you were just having the clothing in an apartment and you were asking women to come there and be able to try them on to purchase? Um, we created the samples. We decided that we wanted to use fabrics from Indonesia because we liked the batik patterns and 
So I faxed the Indonesian consulate and I got a list of printers in, in Indonesia and we flew to Java and we stayed at the Shangri-La there and we met with um, basically only one print supplier because all the other print suppliers came to meet with us, but they left the hotel not realizing that we were two young American women. They were looking for two Chinese men. They thought that Amy and Octavia were Chinese uh, Western names. Okay. And so the, um, the couple that we met with that owned a printing factory in Solo, Indonesia, was uh, a woman who spoke English. Her husband did not. She was wearing a full um, burqa. And which being from the South, this was the first time I'd ever, you know, even experienced anything like that. And I could only um, see her eyes. And, um, but, you know, knowing that they were, uh, they had this printing factory, we did what any normal person would do. We checked out of the Shangri-La, we jumped in the back of their car and we drove two hours to their home and spent the night there and uh, worked in their printing mill for a few days. Uh, recoloring their batik fabrics and the woman Frary she had to stay in this little room that they had on top of all these rice patties and I remember she took off the burqa and she was wearing Levi's a Rolling Stone t-shirt and she was like 25 years old um, Stop. so it was oh just a really you know just just very I mean I've been so blessed now through having this company to work with so many different cultures, but that was my real first experience, and uh, it was pretty amazing. Um, and so they did the first uh, first round of fabrics for us. And so when I got the four styles, the samples, then we ordered fabric, and we had those samples made up into a small production run, which I stored at my house, and then which we went trolling for customers to sell to. So then we held a big party at my house and we sold about $10,000 worth of clothing, which wow. is amazing in hindsight. Um, Were you blown away or did you expect that I was, result? Yeah, I was so excited because I remember I called my husband and he was like, well, and but he thought I was talking about Hong Kong dollars, which would have made it around 1100 US dollars, but I was talking US. So it was really good and it paid for our first production run and um and then those expats who bought the clothing ended up going back to the United States and they went back to Australia and to London and places like that. And they wore the clothing and that kind of got the attention of other retailers because back then that's how retailers found out about new brands. When customers came in, if they liked what you were wearing, they asked where it came from and then they would hunt down the label. And my gosh, and were you Tibby at that point? Was that the name of the we brand then? We were actually Tibby Highland at that point. Mm -hmm. And so we, um, we got word from a boutique in Nantucket called Eye of the Needle. They had one in Nantucket and one in Palm Beach, Florida. And Karen Golov, the owner, um, she wanted to see the line. And this is 1997, so contemporary barely exists as a category. There were brands that you probably don't even know of, like Daryl Kay, Kationa Deli, 
like those were the very first brands. 97 was the year that Dan von Furstenberg got back into business. It was the year that theory started. Okay. So all of a sudden there started to be these contemporary stores like I had the needle and then a store called scoop. Yeah. And the whole idea being that they were not at the time, like if you were a boutique, you had like really old lady clothes or, um, or you had like weird junior Papagallo patch, uh, super preppy. <laughs> I um, remember. Yeah. But there was no place for like all that in between in between designer in between Missy in between, you know, not preppy. Um, so you had all stores popping up. that didn't necessarily have, you had a mismatch in supply and demand. Um, so lots of demand with very few labels out there. Was that one of the, Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, was that one of the reasons why you felt so passionate about starting this brand and starting this company is you saw the white space first and then wanted to fill the need? I, I, I saw the white space actually in a much clearer way than I think I would have ever seen it living in uh, the United States because when I went to Hong Kong, the space that I was looking to fill was, uh, which oddly is, is more relevant now, was at the time I wanted to create super chic, simple styles in unbelievably luxury fabrics at a uh, young designer price point. And so, and I didn't know to call it young designer, but I knew I didn't want it to be designer price point. And so that was my original intent. And that was a company I went to go start when I had my first meeting. But when I met Octavia, we pivoted it into, let's do something fun. Let's use these boutique fabrics. And so then when we started talking about the pricing, that's when it was very obvious in Hong Kong that if you went to the stores, you either had Gucci or you had brands called G2000. And G2000 was like whatever the gap was to to Asia at the time. It was like the gap or it was like maybe J. Crew. Um, so I was like, okay, somewhere between a $2,000 dress and an $80 dress is where like I want to be. And so being in a country where you had no other options than that, and when the cheaper options, you know, you put on the sleeve, I'm only 5'5", five five, but I'd put on the sleeve, it would like barely come past my elbow uh, because of the sizing differences. It was very clear that like, what the hell were you going to buy? And so that was the way that we set ourselves up was to fill that need. When we got to the U.S., we realized the same need existed in the U.S. Um, we just saw it through a little bit of a different lens, you know, but it was, uh, but it helped give clarity to something that had I just been walking around the U.S. market, maybe I would have been okay with, you know, Henry Bendel's private label and maybe Banana Republic. I wouldn't have ever really realized what was really missing. So what a gift to be able to go over there and see that. What originally took you to Hong Kong? I don't know if I heard that. Uh, my husband got transferred. And, uh, you know, I barely had like two stamps on my passport at that time. So it was just really um, exciting to go and do something new. 
I'm just such a believer that, you know, obviously these steps in our lives end up happening to lead us where we're meant to be. And I just love hearing this portion of your story and, and seeing how clearly that that presented itself to you um, and, and shows exactly where you were meant to be, to be able to fill this space and to be able to see it so clearly. I just love that. Um, yeah, you just got to roll with that. So while you were in Hong Kong, you were developing the brand. How long did you stay there before you went back to the United States? Uh, we were there until mid-2000, so around four years, just under four years. And so by the time we moved back to the U.S., um, you know, my husband had actually then quit his job at American Express and joined me at Tibby. And um, I was pregnant with our first, boy, our first son, Gabriel. Mm-hmm. Um, and his parent, my husband's parents were quite a bit older. So we, we wanted to get back to the U.S. And that last year I was in Hong Kong, I had, I had made 11 flights between Hong Kong and the U.S. So I was oh just like at my wit's end. You know, I just was at a breaking point for sure. Absolutely. Because that was going to be my next question was, you know, was it the demand on the brand at that point um, that brought you back to the United States? And it sounds definitely like the answer is yes, that it had grown to such a point. So where was it? Can you give us a picture of where the brand was when you got back to the United States? You know, what you were carried in maybe how many stores, you know, where did things stand? Well, when I got back to the Octavia left pretty Octavia left about nine months in mm-hmm. and so at coming back to the U.S. I had uh, two employees in Hong Kong and then I had um, we were sold at Neiman's and Saks and then I had probably I could have had as many as a hundred boutiques on board because I had also while living overseas had hired a really good salesperson and uh, again, we were in that market where uh, demand was outstripping supply. And, um, and so, but I still like, we were still getting our shit together. And, you know, I think I had like horrific fits on the clothing. I hadn't really figured out things like hiring technical designers and some of the things I really needed to have a good business. I, I waited way too long to hire experts in the right area. Um, I really wish I had made some of those hires earlier on in the game. And what was the delay there? um, Part of the delay was not knowing what I needed. You know, just not knowing that there was someone who literally would do nothing but fit a piece of clothing all day and night not knowing that there was a woman who would be a fit model who would do nothing but try on clothing all day and night. Mm -hmm. You know, I just had such little knowledge of the industry. So when I moved back to the U S I hired a designer and, you know, immediately she's like, well, where's the tech designer? Where's, you know, so you just realize what you were getting away with. Um, And, you know, for sure at that point, like I'm running a $3 million company with like, you know, three employees and my mom. So <laughs> it was pretty profitable. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so are you you still doing all the production back in Indonesia? No, no, no. We, after that first season and my factory about killed me when they got the fabric production from Indonesia because they let all the fabric dry on the farm. So chickens ran all over the fabric. So there were like chicken feet prints and stuff (laughs) like that. So. But again, what you don't know, they were like, Amy, you know, if you want batik fabric, we just create a print that looks like batik and then you print it on big rolls. And I was like, oh, so I don't need to go to Indonesia and actually work at a batik mill and do these little five yard pieces of fabric that dry in a yard, which, you know, now sustainably and and authentically, there's something very interesting and appealing about it. Um, but at the time, it wasn't so practical. Yeah. So I'm just so interested because I'm hearing some of these things that other people might label, you know, mistakes or problems or issues, you know, not knowing, you know, certain things that could have made your business easier, having your partner leave, you know, being well, for, in. But for you, everything. Yeah. For everything, for everything that I didn't know, I would say that. I would never trade it for knowing everything because like one of the things that I did not know was I did not know that there were shipping companies that, that if you had a big shipment coming in that you went to like this company called Ron Bergman in uh, New Jersey and that Ron would ship it and he would pack it and blah, 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 and receive it into the U S et cetera. I didn't know that. So of course me, what do I do? I call my mom, who's a school teacher, and I have her take in my first shipment in our house. And and because mom did it, then she did our second shipment and our third shipment. Then she ended up quitting her job and opening a warehouse. And so then it became more efficient for us to clear our own goods and ship them because then when a store needed just one piece of something or they needed to exchange something, we could because it was my mom and her really nice friends shipping. And so whenever we got into trouble with this or customer service issues, people called us and we weren't Ron Bergen in New Jersey answering the phone. We were, you know, Jenny and Judy in the warehouse and really nice Southern accents and really sweet to people. And so we kept a lot of accounts that probably would have dropped us. And then when it came time, ultimately in the world, when e-commerce came around, which none of us knew that was coming down the pike, the fact that we owned our own warehouse gave us an unbelievable leg up when starting e-commerce. It's most companies, most brands outsource their e-commerce operations because they do not own their own warehouse. And so they give away 76 cents on the dollar to someone to manage that process. But because we owned our own warehouse, we never had to do that. So, you know, that to me in hindsight was a brilliant thing. It was, you know, brilliant that my mom, taught high school to the banker from SunTrust who gave us a line of credit. And that was brilliant instead of using, you know, someone wonderful like a city bank in New York, but we would have meant shit to them. So, you know, just not knowing to go to Citibank and just go to 
you know, Bubba Tootin or whoever from SunTrust, um, yeah. it worked out. And they're still our banker to this day, and they give us our line of credit, and they're our biggest fans. So, oh my you gosh. know, it works out. I love this. I mean, I'm just grinning ear to ear because I'm picturing your mom and her friends in there, you know, shipping packages and answering the phone and helping people. And I mean, I know, I mean, Nemans was calling my mom at the school forever. And that's when we had to like <laughs> get her a proper garage and yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so wait, Neiman Marcus is calling her at the school where she's teaching while yeah. Stop. This is yeah. too funny. But I then mean, I was so cheap that like we got her a garage, but I wouldn't pay for electricity. So then she like could only work until like five o'clock, you know, <laughs> until the sun would go down. So, oh you know, my you do what you got to do. What an amazing story of bootstrapping things and creating massive success. Yeah. Um, so you you have this huge warehouse now and e-commerce has come along so take us through kind of the the middle part of the 2000s and your evolution what started to happen there um well what started to happen was that i i found that i was really good at um identifying trends and so, you know, when there was a trend for bias cut skirts, I was ahead of it and had already done it and got tons of press on it. And it was a great thing. And when there, you know, then I found these Indian beaded um, headbands and I did all this stuff with them. And it was when Tom Ford had come out with this whole Indian beaded collection. So then that tapped into a trend and I started doing these things with other, anyways, I, I was really good at knowing what was coming around the corner and but then what happened is then i got into this thing using all these um, like 60s floral prints and whenever your big moment is when you blow up it's the retailer's instinct is to grab you and make you stay there and so when i really hit it out of the park with these like kind of vintage inspired prints that's when the retailers started really coming back to me for more and more and more. And I was like feeding this beast mm -hmm. and I never had been a real printed person. And, um, and I was fine doing something outside of my true love because it was making lots of money and I could disassociate myself with it. But when it stopped making lots of money and then when it started becoming the reason why people weren't carrying us, and that they weren't carrying us for the very thing that I didn't even want to be to begin with. Um, that's when, you know, I really just needed to kind of kick the, kick the basket and break it all wide open and start anew. And that happened for us uh, in the mid 2000 or no, actually around 2011, you know, prior to that, we'd just been cruising along, you know, each year growing, growing, growing. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, the, the plummet and the desire for prints, the people were locking you in as these kind of vintage inspired printed brands. And they were locking me in with brands like Trina Turk or Millie or Nanette Laporte. And um, 
no, none of which were brands that I would wear. And uh, I mean, you know, no disrespect to them. It was just not my style. And, um, and so, and then all of a sudden you had Zara and Topshop out there. So there were just a lot of warning signs that if we did not change our business at that point, that we would be out of business. And uh, like a lot of those brands are nowadays, or they're just very different businesses than what they were in the beginning. Okay, guys, I know many of you are small business owners, and you probably are struggling with the same thing that I struggled with when I started my business, a payment processing system that does the work for you. You want an easy solution, something you can plug and play. And believe me, I have tried them all. And I have found one that I love. So of course, I had to share it with you, the listener. It's called Moon Clark. It is amazing. All you have to do is create a form or a payment plan for your client once. And if you're setting them up on a recurring payment system, not only does it email them before the payment is charged, but it thanks them afterwards all automatically for you. It is a total no-brainer if you have any recurring charges for your customers. Or if you're just setting up a one-time payment, you can use the same link every single time. And that has saved me countless hours. Rather than other systems where I had to customize a link every time and I was charging the same amount, it just created so much more administrative work. And Moonclerk eliminates all of that for you. So if you want to simplify your business, try out Moonclerk. Trust me. You know how you're listening to this podcast on your phone right now? Well, click on the description and the link is right there. It's so simple. Or you can always head to my Instagram and click the link in my profile. Either way, I know you're going to love Moonclerk, and I can't wait to hear how much time it saves you. So it sounds like you had to really reconnect with your ultimate vision for the company and, you know, what you wanted to communicate as a brand. Exactly. And so how, exactly. did you, how did you do that? Is that when you ended up rebranding entirely and changing the look of your logo and going through that process? Yeah, we, uh, you know, we, we did this in steps again, because you don't, it's still an evolution. And as far as you think you can go at one point, you wake up sometimes a year later and you know that you can even go further and, Um, and, you know, to be honest, when we started this whole process, I would have never dreamt that, you know, I would be talking to you and that I'd be in Prince Tom and, you know, just Net-A-Porter and Hamden and et cetera, you know, all these amazing, beautiful places in the designer, the young designer area. Um, but, you know, you, you do have to really, um, step back and, what we did is we just really did an assessment of what the core was that we wanted the brand to stand for. And at that point there were employees who were on board with it and there were those who weren't. And there were a lot of tough choices at that time. You know, a lot of people exited the company because they were really afraid of what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, Change always um, does that to people. 
It does. I mean, it really freaks a lot of people out. Um, but it also so, tells me that you have a very strong vision for who you are and for, you know, your brand because you're willing to fight against the grain and walk through that change because a lot of people aren't. Well, I just, the way, um, I'm not so afraid of failure. I mean, I grew up on an island. You know, we had a Volkswagen Jeep. I had a hole in the floor. It, you know, my parents are still married. They love each other. My sister and I have a great relationship. Um, you know, family really, family and health come first. So I, to me, it's all a bit of a game. You know, if, if I still have those two things, then everything else, like, why would I do something I hate if to get something that, you know, if I'm going to prioritize what's important to me, it would be closer to the bottom. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you feel that way, you really can be quite fearless, but, but it's helpful that my husband is very, um, he's very meticulous and um, cautionary and, you know, but I mean, for him, the worst that can happen is his mom was in Auschwitz for six years. So, you know, he escaped a communist uh, country when he was 18 in the middle of the night. So we have different, um, different experiences to what it means to have nothing and so you know somewhere we meet in the middle and it's it works out that sounds like you both have a great sense of perspective and they're always a good balance yeah you're always applying that to your business and it is so important um to be able to pull back and it sounds like you were doing that in 2011 is pulling back and looking at the 30,000 foot view of wait a minute we're not going to keep riding down this path despite people wanting me to, because I know what, you know, the ultimate goal is the, the greatest priorities are just, you know, health and happiness. And yeah, and you, yeah. but you can't imagine how many times I hear entrepreneurs or really experienced business people identify that change needs to happen. And then all of a sudden they'll rationalize why status quo makes sense. Yes. And, I think like no matter what, when we would have all these debates about the need to, you know, what were we going to be and the need to pivot, there was such a tendency to want to be able to say, well, we could just stay the same, but no matter what, like that was not an, it just wasn't an option. Right. Um, the, the same was no longer existing. So you, you just can't advocate for that. You have to move to something. It's just what you're going to move to is what you should be debating. I could not agree more. And that's the entire concept of hitting rock middle is that people believe that they are staying at the status quo. And, and what I always advocate is you're not, you're headed in one direction or the other. It's just whether or not you understand that, right? Exactly. You're, you're either moving backwards or you're moving forwards. And a, a lot of people think that, you know, they're going to stay right there in the middle and be able to ride it out. Um, but the rest of the people around them are moving forward, which is therefore going to leave them far behind. Um, exactly. And you've got to be able to, to make that change. And it sounds like you guys had your own rock middle moment where you're looking around and saying, we can either make this change or stay stuck and go out of business, which, you know, other people made the choice, unfortunately, to do, 
um, yeah. in their in their own ignorance at the time and their kind of defense. Like that's what society wants you to do. And it sounds like even your staff end, ends up advocating for is let's stay where we are. It's working. Um, but you saw the future, which is certainly a huge part of why you are where you are today and thriving and um, so creative. I mean, it's amazing. Um, yeah. You can tell how inspired I am by you right now. I'm just, it's fantastic. Um, and it, you. so you're sitting at this rock metal moment. How do you have the courage though to face those employees and let them go? Because that's when people hear those doubts and they rationalize staying. So it, what gave you the gumption to make the change? Well, I think what was the most helpful was that, you know, like my head of design, Tracy, I had hired her. She had been at, you know, at uh, Donna Karen before me, like she didn't want to be doing this crap we were making either, you know? So for her, this was really liberating and exciting. And, um, and so I, I wanted to be proud of what we were making and I was not proud at all of what we were doing before. And, um, and so I just, I can be very destructive that way. Like I just, I just was like, screw it. You know, I just, um, I want to I want to walk into a store and be like, yeah, this is my stuff. And I, and that I would wear it by the way. And I think that, um, you know, the great thing is, and this is why, again, I caution against people getting obsessed with like five year business plans is, I think what no one knew in 2011 was that the thing that would trump all now is authenticity. Mm -hmm. And so I think that no matter what it is you want to do right now, just the very nature that it being something that you love counts for like so much. And, uh, and people are really hungry for that and they want that. And, um, so it's, you know, I could not have, have known that. And so had we come up with a company strategy that was all like fake and outside of stuff that we really loved, then we still wouldn't be here today because that authenticity pivot now I would say is about, I would say it's about two years in strong now. And it's becoming more and more important. People want to know who's behind a company. They want to, you know, like your sister's company, Hampton. They want to know, is it a real life person? Is it a conglomerate? You know, who's making this stuff? Absolutely. Um, they associate it so much more with it being an outward expression of themselves. And that's something my sister has taught me so much. And I know that you completely agree with this, that, you know, that, that fashion is so much more than just what you're wearing. It's, it says so much about you and who you are and what you believe. It does. And I've been really with my head of marketing, just kind of fascinated right now on, you know, what, um, what it is that brings nostalgia for people. And we've been talking about how, you know, since the two thousands, there's no, um, there's no monoculture anymore. You know, in the 1990s, if I was at American Express, when I got to work, we had all pretty much watched Seinfeld the night before, you know, it was 
So it was Friday morning. Everyone had watched Seinfeld. Now, when you come into an office, you don't know what the hell they've watched. You know, they've watched whatever was on Netflix. Or, you know, like so no true. one, no one all went someplace listening to, you know, fine young cannibals on the radio. And so you don't have these common memories. You know, if you talk to everyone in my high school, the theme from Footloose will remind you of your senior year. And that no one has a theme now for anything. So you have to find, you know, but it doesn't mean that people don't crave it because that is what gives a connectedness between people. So people are looking for ways to connect with others. And so, you know, I'm glad that we're small. I'm glad that we're privately owned. I'm glad that we don't have any investors because it allows us to be very true about who we are. And, um, and you can decide, maybe you don't want to connect with us at all. Maybe you're like, ew. Uh, but if you're not, then you know what you get and it's clear. Well, I can definitely say that your vision is very clear and you've definitely fought hard over the years to be able to communicate that. And, um, I am just incredibly grateful that you've shared your story with us. It is a truly inspiring one. Um, and you're probably one of the few that has had a business that spanned, um, you know, many decades now that I've interviewed on this podcast, many of them have been new entrepreneurs. And so if you had to tell a new entrepreneur kind of your top tip, and I'm sure it's hard for you to narrow down, what would you say to um, a new entrepreneur is the most important thing for them to remember as they're starting their business? Um, you have to progress every single day. Yeah. You just do it. That's the one, I mean, just because it's the one thing I see, I mean, people come to me and they're like, I want to launch a stress line. I've been working on this dress for two years. I'm like, you do not want to launch a dress line if you've been working on that dress for two years. You know, like you, people will find every single thing possible to stall, to, you know, just procrastinate and you cannot do that. You have to just do it. You won't know if it'll work unless you do it. You have to just do it. So, There's a reason why Nike came up with that, that slogan. You're right. Um, so you are sold in many retailers all over the world today, but obviously I'm biased and, um, mm -hmm. that if people want to shop Tibby, then they can go to hamdenclothing.com to be able to see the latest and greatest from your collection. Is there one piece right now that you're just most excited about? Um, oh no, that's Sophie's choice for me. So <laughs> I, I really do. I love every, you heard me, like I love yeah. everything we make now. So um, I love it all. Sorry. Well, one thing I will definitely say that if you do not have a pair of Tibby shoes, you know, you, you have got to be able to shop the shoe collection as well because it's just as stunning as the clothing. And um, I have several pairs and love them. So. Yay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so to wrap us up, I just want to really say thank you again for sharing your time with us. And um, as you embark on the next decade, um, is there 
one final thing that kind of keeps you motivated and going yourself? Um, I think that the thing that encourages me the most is what I was talking about with authenticity, because mm -hmm. it means that you have a voice out there. I spent a lot of years waiting around for recognition from Vogue or someone like that. And, you know, it never came. And so I think that the idea now that you don't need that, you really don't like start with your Instagram, start with all your social media. You have so many tools right now. So um, just uh, be excited about that because you can, you can write your own story that way. You don't have to wait for someone else to do it. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, Amy. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. And cheers to you and the next decade of Tibby. I may have to increase now wearing Tibby one, one day a week to every day of the week. I'm so inspired by your story. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Hitting Rock Middle podcast. I'm your host, Sally Holder. Remember that you can always find out more about me by visiting sallyholder.com. That's S-A-L-L-I-E-H-O-L-D-E-R.com. And if you want to stay in touch or get more free tips from me, make sure to join my free weekly newsletter that's filled with tips to help you achieve your greatest potential. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere where you're currently listening. And leave us a review. It really is a small thing to do that goes a long way to helping others find our show too. We'll be back next week with another empowering story of dreaming beyond the American dream. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.